This episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 21st of September 2021 at home in Wicklow. And it started with the question, do you know what sets you off in movies? As in, are you aware of a certain type of scene or certain types of characters or certain types of stories that speak to you and have nothing to do with the quality or popularity of the movie you're watching. What I'm talking about is what I would describe as your own personal movie catnip, because that's where I'm going today in the podcast. I have my version of that, and it's what I call the equivalent of uh, of the chick flick for men it is the male chick flick so i'm not talking about fast and furious or action movies or those kind of genre movies of you know escapism or gangster movies or whatever uh, although there can be a bit of crossover really what i'm looking at is a certain depiction of bruised masculinity a sort of a yearning, damaged, pained masculinity that's trying to find its expression. And there's a type of character that has appealed to me since I was a child. And the podcast explores the through line from then to a whole group of movies that have been made in the last 20 years. And I focus on a set of five directors all men who are often very concerned with these stories of men trying to surpass or transcend their damage, who are striving to reconnect, who are striving to have a functional emotionality within very difficult circumstances. And that is really what you're going to be hearing a lot of movie references and yeah brace yourself it's a wallow it's a wallow in male emotion and i hope you enjoy it i'll see you there Ooh, not gonna change my mind leaving the dream Hi, my name is Dara Clear and you're listening to The Clear Out. How the hell are you? How's it going? I hope you're well. And you know what? You might even be in a colossal, which, uh, if you're not an Irish speaker, means sound asleep, sleeping soundly, sleeping sound and safe and sound. Uh, because I am messing with the format not so much the format of <laughs> not so much the format of the show the podcast but the format of my my routine how i approach recording the podcast because i am sitting down to record this late by my standards late on late on a weekday night i usually do my recording uh in the day um sort of early afternoon or late morning that's that's the typical the typical slot 
when I'm in the zone, energy-wise, head-wise. But I'm at the end of a long day. I had a busy day today. And this seems to have been... Well, I could have I could have put this off until tomorrow. But I wanted to just try and get it done. It suits me to get it done a little bit earlier in the week. And I thought, listen, why not? I'll sit down tonight when the women folk are in bed. That'd be the wife and the daughter. And the entire production team have abandoned me for their beds also. The guinea pigs snuggled up side by side. The hens, I carried them one by one through the dark back to the hen house and put them in there on their bed of sawdust. And the the marketing team, we keep them separated at all times because the head of marketing might actually try to disembowel <laughs> might actually try to disembowel the uh, the assistant um, and that would not do because how in God's name would they market for me then if one goes in the clink for a murder rap and the other one is struggling to keep her insides inside <laughs> Meanwhile, the uh, the chickens, I've decided, are the finance department because they lay eggs. And as any good, I don't know, as any good analyst of symbols knows, eggs represent money. I don't know why they don't represent life, but they represent money, don't they? Eggs, symbolically, nest eggs, etc. Uh, so the, she, the, the chickens are the finance department and they are far from impressive the yield has been low i think we're we're talking three to four eggs to date and as previously recorded they're not big those eggs and those chickens you know they're throwing shapes they've got some moves and they're asserting their their rights on at hashtag blessed and i'm just wondering well maybe you should be delivering a bit more guys uh, if you want to throw your weight around the way you do. Anyway, that's that's the chickens. Now, the guinea pigs. Not quite sure. Not quite sure what their role is in the, uh, the production crew. We've got marketing. We've got finance. Are they responsible for sound? <laughs> I know they make a lot of sound. And they, uh, yeah, they, they, they bash around their little their little quarters and nuzzle up to each other they're brothers brothers in love and that that lends itself to a beautiful segue to this week's topic which is not exclusively about brothers but it's about men <laughs> and it's about men and bonds and friendship and yes brothers and fathers and sons and i am going to talk about i'm going to mention a lot of movies a lot of movies today i'm going to talk about a lot of male directors and their particular interest in the lives of men and how i've responded to those movies and i'm going to talk about certain male types that have been presented through movie history and how certain male types chimed with me at a very young age 
and I'm going to draw a little through line from then to now. Uh, and so before before I get there, before I start on that epic journey, and I, I feel I feel like it is epic. I have to jot down a few notes. Uh, the reason I had a biz, 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 busy day today was I had to take my father to the hospital for a little checkup. So I was up bright and squirrely with the squirrels at about half five this morning and I went out pre-dawn and did my routine uh, in the dark and got myself organised and left the house, but not before bringing down a cup of tea to my wife, which is the morning routine, and saying bye-bye, bye-bye wife, I love you, bye-bye daughter who had jumped into bed before her morning routine began and off I went uh, early and spent the first part of the day with my father and we went up to hospital and that all went very well which was nice my father walked out of the consultation two feet taller having received some good news about a worrying health issue and we just had a nice time hanging out and he was telling me a lot of stories and really demonstrating some great recall which is that's from that's worth remarking upon because he's he has really been on the 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 journey moving moving slowly in the direction of dementia in that direction he's not there but there's like cognitive impairment so bringing stories out of the past is challenging and timelines are extremely challenging so it was ironic that at our little medical consultation today well his i was just there to be a chaperone we were sat down with um two trainee doctors a, a lovely young woman from malaysia and a young man from singapore and their unenviable task was to uh, <laughs> was to get my father's medical history and I mean yeah it was just it was slightly comical I mean everyone's wearing masks and my you know these guys they had they had good English I could understand them but my background is English teaching and uh, my ear is somewhat tuned but um, yeah every question that went to my father he he understood them half the time but then once he understood he turned to me and go look to me for the answer i'm like i don't know the answer this is your medical history but yeah probably the, one of the most difficult tasks anyway grand it, it just made the whole thing twice as long as it could have been whatever anyway that was the day the start of the day and i came back home and i thought can i can i sit down and do the podcast but then there was an unexpected visit from my aunt mother of my cousin who lives here at hashtag blessed my, my cousin is having a few health issues of his own and was having a bit of a tough day. So I had a nice chat with my aunt. She went off and I had a few busy domestic chores to get through before getting into dinner prep. And I decided there was a bit of a roast chicken left in the fridge. And I thought, right, I'm going to make a hearty chicken soup. And I'm going to go down a slightly Chinese road and make it a chicken and sweet corn soup and I'm going to give that to my cousin and I'll have some. My wife's vegetarian. She wasn't going to have that. So I also made a a chicken korma with fake chicken. Uh, yeah, one of those fake meat products, chicken pieces, but they're 
vegetarian friendly so I did a korma which my daughter ate that's a big deal that's her first ever curry I made it very mild so it was a busy little bee trying to look after everyone with some good home cooked food and it all went down well so that was nice and then my wife was working in the recording studio if you will the office the home office uh, because she's doing a business course at night after her hard working day so I had to wait for her to vacate before I could get in here so there you go that's what's been going on today it's been a long day and I think I'm ready I think I'm ready after sharing a little bit of the bonding that myself and my father enjoyed today I'm going to talk about movies movies that are like catnip to me so let me just be very clear from the start I'm not necessarily talking about my favourite movies of all time. I'm not necessarily talking about movies that I hold in really high esteem or critically acclaimed movies or movies that really fall into the uh, you know cinephile movie fan, you know, that sort of movie passion, amateur critic sort of area. I'm just talking about what I consider... Uh, the equivalent of a chick flick. So the chick flick is you know the much derided movie that apparently is designed to satiate the appetite of a female audience. Uh, Rom-coms typically fall into this category. Um, any sort of sappy, drippy, wet, female-oriented drama falls into this category um i remember about 10 years ago an australian guy i was working with who was he was a movie fan he was a big 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 fan of old hollywood movies um good guy i felt he and he was just you know very a very pure fan i remember i sort of started to expound on the allegorical background of The Natural, the Robert Redford movie, which I spoke about in an earlier episode of the podcast. And, you know, I went into the Arthurian background, King Arthur and blah, blah, blah. And he looked at me like, what? What the hell are you talking about? Don't don't ruin this for me. Anyway, I remember we were talking about Silver Linings Playbook, the David O. Russell uh, you know drama comedy dramedy from when was it was it 2010 was it 2011 12 early early those years and he dismissed it and he's like oh chick flick and I was like oh really I, I'm a big fan of that movie I don't know it, it, I, I really really love it anyway whatever that, that, that movie doesn't fall into the category that I want to get into today as I said I want to talk about movies that I think are the equivalent, the equivalent of a chick flick for men. Now, I suppose the temptation is to call them dick flicks, but that sounds vaguely pornographic. And I mean, I already touched on, you know, porn and objectification and all of that last week. So I'm going to stay away from that area today. But dick flicks does seem a bit harsh. So let's just call them male chick flicks. I mean, bro flicks, they're not bromances in the, the Judd Apatow sort of school of male comedy bonding, 
those movies I, I I'm very fond of those movies as well but um they all tend to be 45 minutes too long and mostly I feel that 45 minutes is to accommodate uh the emotional heft of the relationships to go hey these hilarious goofy funny dopey infantilized men also have big feelings and we're going to drive that message home and it's the undoing it's the undoing of a lot of those movies um they're just yeah i don't know it's tonally it always jars a bit so anyway grand i'm not even going to mention those movies so you can look them up um so the type of movies that i'm talking about they depict men a certain way and fundamentally fundamentally what i'm talking about is this kind of hard soft combo these tough men or hard men with soft gooey feelings these men who are struggling somehow with their emotional lives but they are sort of you know rigorous and resilient and tough and they're fighters and they get stuck in and they may live in a man's man mode and in a man's world and yet their heart their emotional angst and yearning is there it's there it's palpable it's close to the surface and these movies they really use that energy and that tension as as the driver of the relationships in the movie and the driver of the drama and the driver of the the hero journey or the anti-hero journey or whatever it might be and sometimes also with these guys there can be these characters there can be a sort of a a righteous storyline as well so they're often explorations of conflicted masculinity and explorations of challenged masculinity and depictions of masculinity trying to come good trying to you know emerge from the compromised state trying to find the higher ground masculinity wrestling with the demons that would cover up conceal bury the better self within and another another aspect of these characters and this is the pure candy floss fantasy part it's it's the reluctant badass the the the, the, you know the, the male character who is trying to keep the fists in the pocket the male character who's trying to keep the gun in the drawer and that's not a euphemism although i mean you can read anything you want into these things can't you i mean when is a gun not that uh but again we're not going there we're not going there this week um so yeah the 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 reluctant badass i mean that's a that's a great one because that that, that's just naturally holding tension and building anticipation and suspense all through the bloody movie where you're going when's it going to kick off when is the guy gonna crack 
<laughs> and start kicking ass and dispensing justice and asserting himself in that righteous way and the build-up of the, the, you know, the repressed, the dampened volcano. That Again, very sexual. The eruption, the spill, the spill of power, the spill of self um, to, to cleanse the land. Let's put it that way. Um, so there you go. That's, that's kind of the territory I'm talking about. And, and I, am, I am deliberately... I am deliberately not going into specifics just yet. I'm deliberately talking around it. But let me try to put my finger on the root of all of this. So I, from a very young age, was drawn to the movies. It's as simple as that. And it would be a rare occasion that if a movie was on TV during the day, whenever I might be home... I guess typically this would happen at weekends or on holidays. It's not like I was watching a lot of movies during the school week as a kid. But it doesn't matter what was on. I'd be like, okay, I'm watching this. I'll sit down and watch this. Black and white, no problem. You know, I'm there. Bring me in. And it's, you know, it's even difficult for me to to try and remember, you know, if there was if there was a gateway movie. I mean, like I was growing up in the you know as a kid born in the born in the mid 70s so at some point not too long after that consuming whatever fodder was on tv um that's fodder <laughs> f-o-d-d-e-r rather than a strange irish pronunciation of father who are you fodder um so kids tv there would have been movies at some point and those staples of late 70s, early 80s, you know, that American kind of fare of the likes of uh, Chips and The Fall Guy and Knight Rider, a little bit later probably The A-Team. I mean, they were all favourites. And then you had the ones that seemed a little bit more adult like um, Hawaii Five-0 and Charlie's Angels, The Rockford Files, um, and then later on, you realise there were shows like maybe Hill Street Blues, which was probably this kind of amazing linking, um, yeah, sort of a, sort of a link between. Like, I mean, Hill Street Blues was an eighties show, but kind of you could see that sort of as coming out on the back of the seventies TV product and being this link to what came next. This sort of um, NYPD blue. There, there's a shared creator there, isn't there? Have I got that wrong? Anyway, I don't want to get into the TV stuff, really. I'm just trying to remember what would have planted the seed. I have spoken previously about clowns and idiots and whether I was one. And I definitely remember really being a huge fan of particularly Charlie Chaplin and Laurel and Hardy. Um, Harold Lloyd was in the mix as well never cared for the Three Stooges for some reason I'm not sure what it is about those guys Abbott and <laughs> Abbott and Costello or if you want to go for the Irish pronunciation Abbott and Costello one of the one of the Anascorti Costellos is it? Abbott and Costello their movies used to come on I used to I think at Christmas you'd get the whole run of Abbott and Costello movies you know, when they meet the werewolf and that kind of stuff. 
um, maybe a Christmas hit season. Those movies would be on every day. Quite like those as well. Um, Marx Brothers were, we were fans of the Marx Brothers. I was, my brothers and I, friends as well, maybe. Anyway, Grant, maybe, so maybe those old black and white, you know, comedies were a gateway. Cartoons were a gateway of a type. The, the, the evening, you know, that kind of seven o'clock, eight o'clock TV slot with some of those American shows. Simon and Simon, I remember as well. Um, yeah, anyway, Grant. But I'll tell you, let's keep it with the movies. And there was a type of character, a type of character that sort of anticipated these, these other types that I, I was speaking about before. And so we're in this hard, soft combination a little bit of the righteous, the wronged righteous man, a little bit of the reluctant badass. And I was just having a quick reflection on who were the guys that resonated with me? Who were the guys that spoke to me and from these old movies? And the first two actors that came to mind were Montgomery Clift and Alan Ladd. Now, it wasn't like I was devouring their entire filmography at a young age. But of course, certain of their movies came on the screen. And for Montgomery Clift, two movies jump out. One is From Here to Eternity, which was uh, directed by Fred Zinneman in 1953. And based on this like monster bestseller book set in kind of Hawaii and Pearl Harbor and the bombing of Pearl Harbor... And focusing on a you know soldier in the U.S. Army, and he was a he was a like a an amazing boxer, but he he hurt somebody in the ring, and he doesn't want to box anymore. But he comes into the army, and he's put under ferocious pressure to box for the army boxing team, and he just doesn't want to go there. And Montgomery Clift is just holding that sort of. That sort of, uh, that pain, that like emotional pain, the angst, the slightly haunted, you know, the, 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 the bruised soul in that character. And he is being put under pressure by the slightly stiff uh, officer, Burt Lancaster, who's having an affair with his superior officer's wife, Deborah Carr, that's the famous, the famous scene where they kiss in the surf and the waves washing over them, uh, which has been parodied, I'm sure, many times. Um, but Montgomery Clift's ally is Frank Sinatra. And one of their main uh, adversaries ends up being Ernest Borgnine. Uh, and is his nickname Fatso? Am I remembering that right? And in you know one of the, the you know one of the stories of course from the from the movie one of the sorry one of the, the 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 plot lines is Sinatra makes an enemy of Ernest Borgnine and he runs the um, the prison uh, the you know the army kind of the army prison what's it called oh, I've gone blank there's a particular name for that isn't it but he's kind of the military police. And he, Frank Sinatra has had a run in with him, but he ends up, Frank Sinatra ends up in his, in Ernest Borgnine's care. And Ernest Borgnine basically beats him to death. Um, yeah, brutal stuff. Anyway, 
uh, that's the role for which I think Snatch got an Oscar for that, didn't he? But that's the role that the that plot line in The Godfather, where the Godfather's nephew, who's the the crooner, the singer, um, and he's at the Godfather's uh, the daughter's wedding, and he comes to ask him for a favor, and he wants to get a part in a movie that's going to change his career. That's allegedly based on Frank Sinatra going through the same um, you know, motions and manoeuvres and pulling in favours to try and get that part in that movie. I don't know if that's apocryphal or true, but there you go. Anyway, Montgomery Clift is the one who spoke to me as much as I was sad for Frank Sinatra and sort of grimly fascinated uh, stroke repelled by Ernest Borgnine. I really think he's a great, great actor. Um, but Montgomery Clift, the you know the damaged one, the sensitive one, but also, you know, he's a badass, and he does end up using those fists later in the movie. The other Montgomery Clift movie, which I watched later as a teenager, um, or as an older teenager, and absolutely loved it, was Red River, Howard Hawks, which was from '48, and there really. Uh, Montgomery Clift, Montgomery, sorry, Montgomery Clift is pitched against the mighty, <laughs> the mighty John Wayne. Uh, John Wayne is his dad in it, isn't he? And they're ranchers, and they have to move a huge herd of cattle across the, you know, the wild west. And there's this sort of wrestle for for power, and a sort of really, it's a battle for affirmation. Montgomery Clift is, yeah, battling to just be, let be the man he wants to be. And John Wayne is not really going to let him go about that journey quietly. And again, you've got the sort of, the righteousness of Montgomery Clift is trying to do the right thing. But he's just been pecked at and harassed and bullied and pushed hard. Like John Wayne's the tough taskmaster and pushes everyone hard and he's the, the ultimate man's man. No one's going to outfight me, no one's going to outdrink me, all the rest. Um, but it was Montgomery Clift again who I was like, oh yeah, 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 that's the one that I felt like. Is that is that who I want to be? Is that the kind of, is that, I'm ident- I was identifying with him going, um, am I that guy? Am I the, you know, the, the, the bruised one, <laughs> the damaged one? the the righteous one the the earnest one um and one day will i will will i will i find my power will i will i step up and right the wrongs that have been done to me um and of course i'm gonna i'm gonna move quickly along because shane uh shane i was gonna say shane lad alan lad in shane is sort of of the same type so Alan Ladd plays a gunslinger, a former, uh, you know, a, a former gunslinger who, and, and this is, Shane was the same year as From Here to Eternity. It was 1953, directed by George Stevens. And he finds himself, he's like the stranger who finds himself um, in the middle of this conflict between the sort of the New West Farmers, community makers, pioneers, the settlers really who are trying to just build that new life in the new world and are 
people of peace. They're people of the people of the hoe <laughs> as opposed to people of the gun. And they find themselves at odds with the local hard men, the the, the you know, the, the the guys who don't want to give away the land, who don't want to to let this new way of life you know encroach on their spoils and the 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 ranchers the settlers are being harassed by the local bully boys the local badons led by jack palance or jack palance and yeah there's just this build through the movie of you know increasing antagonism and provocation and Alan Ladd refusing to take the bait, refusing to rise, refusing to raise his hand, refusing to get the guns until they go too far. And he feels, no, it's time to take care of business. And the righteousness of him finally stepping up and not going out to fight with relish, you know, with a wanton bloodlust, but with a grim, sad inevitability, just the resignation of, well, here I am again, and um, coming really to the aid of Van Heflin, as you know, this is the household he finds himself in, and Van Heflin is, you know, the sort of the the the, the, the leader of the settlers, and really, what's going on is Van Heflin's son. And I've just gone blank. Oh, Brand, Brandon, Brandon the Wild, is it? Who ended up later, very interestingly, in HUD with Paul Newman and Patricia Neal and an ageing, oh, was the older actor in that? Melvin Douglas. Jeez, oh, I like that film. Paul Newman, again, sort of a bit of a bittersweet, tragic kind of character in it. And Brandon the Wild is the kid in Shane who absolutely hero worships Shane and thinks this guy is the business and gosh, I wish my dad could be like him. And his mother, Van Heflin's wife, I can't remember who played her in the movie, but she's also looking at Shane going, hmm, I like this guy. I like this guy in his sort of uh, calfskin jacket with those kind of uh, those tassels hanging off his shoulders um, and he's kind of cute <laughs> and he's and he's bite sized because famously Alan Ladd was quite short but uh, that doesn't come across too um, too obviously in the movie because he absolutely is he is the man so again you had the reluctant badass and the hard soft combo and him trying to explain to the young fella, this isn't the life you want. And it's not the life I want, but, you know, sometimes a man's got to do what a man's got to do. And it's also just the absolute, uh, you know, one of the epitomes of the black hat, white hat idea. You know, the, the bad cowboys wear the black hats, the good cowboys wear the white ones. In this case, I don't think Alan Ladd actually wears the white hat, but Jack Palance certainly does wear the black hat. And he... He deserves it. He deserve. He deserves everything that's coming. Anyway, that was kind of the start of it. So I was watching those movies, um, and at the same time, I was watching stuff like Star Wars. And Star Wars was, you know, I was bang. I was like right in that 
spot to be yeah this is this is the movie for me for my generation and star wars the two main male characters to to aspire to be or to admire were of course harrison ford's han solo and mark hamill's luke skywalker and harrison ford as han solo is just the absolute the rogue the um you know the 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 outlaw bandit the the, just just the, the the rascal archetype and you know brilliantly winningly confident and devil may care and unconcerned and so I thought he was the I just thought he was the business but I, I, there was no part of me that he didn't resonate with me emotionally and Mark Hamill really in, in the Luke Skywalker character he was sort of just a bit of a drip and you were aware that okay this is going to be his journey to kind of become the guy and it wasn't really until until the the third part of the trilogy the the return of the jedi where mark hamill returns uh for that third part and he is finally a jedi and has that those skills and is frankly a badass and then you're like oh my goodness this is this is the guy we've been waiting for but again the emotional thing isn't there but that was when mark hamill as luke skywalker became interesting because suddenly he 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 was taking care of business as as alan ladd did and as Mont, montgomery clift did in those other movies i've just spoken about now harrison ford i was a massive fan still am really i think he's he's you know he's one of the most charming actors in 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 cinema history and has one of the best voices great voice and Harrison Ford now he wasn't required really to do it in Star Wars and not really required to do it in Indiana Jones so that in the Indiana Jones movies Raiders of the Lost Ark Temple of Doom The Last Crusade that's all I need to talk about the fourth episode was no no thanks no thanks lads but he wasn't really required in those roles to display much in the way of vulnerability Um, so really to my young eyes, he was just—he was just a hero. He was just this, yeah. I—I—I I, I worship at the fountain, at the you know, uh, uh, of Harrison Ford in those roles, and I had his poster on my wall as Indiana Jones, as whatever I was, eight or nine years old. But then, as I grew older, and as his movie choices became more interesting, he cropped up in movies like Witness, and was brilliant as john book the the cop new was he a new york cop i think new york chicago i can't remember what city um oh it must be new york because he ends up hiding out in the amish community which i guess is pennsylvania and he ha- he's there basically to to protect he's protecting a a little boy who's witnessed a murder and that murder was carried out by corrupt cops who were colleagues of Harrison Ford's character. And Danny Glover was one of those cops. Very interesting because you don't see Danny Glover playing bad guys that often. Um, 
But then in that movie, what you're seeing then is Harrison Ford and he's vulnerable because the cops try to take him out because they know he's trying to protect the little witness, the boy. The boy, played by Lucas Haas. And if you want to see his journey, you should check out Steve McQueen's Widows. Now that's Steve McQueen, the director, the English director who I spoke about last week when I spoke about the movie Shame. But Lucas Haas has a great part in Steve McQueen's movie Widows as a real shallow, creepy, uh, well, he's, a, he's an architect, I think, who is sleeping with one of the vulnerable sort of female characters played by the Australian ac- actress Elizabeth Debicki. And yeah, Lucas Haas is great. And it's a small enough role. He has, I don't know how many scenes he has, but he's, yeah, he's kind of awful. Um, to think he played that lovely little boy from Witness but Harrison Ford he has that vulnerability in Witness and he also has the um, the building the building of the tension the building of the anger the desire to act out um, and his control of it because he doesn't want to offend the Amish or break their principles but in the end the fight comes to him because the cops find out where he is the corrupt cops and it's a fantastic end sequence of Witness where they try and take him out on a, at the at the farm the household on the farm um, where he is Witness also has a great romance scene uh, with Harrison Ford in the garage in the yeah a shed at the Amish community now they wouldn't have a garage because they were not using engines or machines so they didn't need to have a gar- garage to repair any engines but his car is there and he's in the shed working on his car and he puts on the radio and so, uh, Sam Cooks, What a Wonderful World comes on the radio and he just he's there and he's talking to Kelly McGillis who's one of the Amish girls and they just have this flirt and he's talking about it he loves the song and it's just she's kind of going oh you know she's not saying it but we know she's feeling it and we know inside she's saying it she's going this is sexy <laughs> this is a sexy guy that's a sexy song and I want to I want to be with him um, so yeah the Harrison Ford journey continued and um, he was starting to tap into that thing um, but the that same type the the tough guy with the soft kind of inside Harrison Ford did start to show that more and more presumed innocent is another good example of that uh, from 1990 but I'm going to quickly return to the older dudes because Spencer Tracy was one of my obsessions as a kid as well. And he did brilliantly in that sort of hurt male thing. The sensitive male, but hurt, but also tough, very resourceful, often very righteous. And I think the movie that cemented that for me, I mean, he had like his famous movies like Boys Town and Captain's Courage. I think he got Oscars, back-to-back Oscars for those roles. And we're talking, that has to be back in the, the, the 50s, late 40s, early 50s. But the movie Fury, which I think is directed by Fritz Lang, that's an extraordinary, very dark movie where Spencer Tracy is just, he's just a regular guy traveling through middle America and he's mistaken for someone who's committed a terrible crime and the local townspeople um, try to 
burn him. But they don't, they're not trying to burn him, but they're, they're trying to get to him like a lynch mob. And they burn the prison that he's in. And he gets, you know, he gets burned. Uh, and then just comes back as a completely changed man. But he's like the, you know, for the worse. Because he, he starts out as this... Um, lovely happy positive optimistic guy and this terrible crime against him this uh, miscarriage of of justice or vigilante justice turns him and he comes back to get his revenge and it's a really dark movie but i remember as a kid going yeah like he's he's right even though he's become a bad man um and he i don't know he was just an interesting actor to me and i think I think to be fair, my mother probably put me on to him. So like it was him. Humphrey Bogart was in the mix as well. But Humphrey Bogart didn't really play that card, the vulnerable thing. Like he had complexity and he could do play baddies quite well. But and he had that sort of world weary kind of sardonic thing where if he was doing Marlowe or the Sam Spade stuff, um or of course uh, famously as uh, Rick in Casablanca. But Spencer Tracy, there was a softness sort of a playfulness and a vulnerability in there as well and definitely an ability to get hurt um and his his kind of epic oeuvre with uh Catherine Hepburn again totally seductive to me I went for a lot of those and you know that was moving that was that, that that's slightly tangential um but he was another one who carried that sort of the wounded masculinity sort of type uh okay anyway all of this, all of this is moving us, moving us along to the the catnip movies, the the male chick flick movies that I that I feel I've come to sort of I've come to appreciate or be drawn to or regard as my comfort food um, on the basis of those other actors that I fell in love with as a as a child. And as I said at the start of the podcast, these are not perfect movies and some of them are, are, are really quite flawed and yet they all deal in this area of, of um, you know, tainted masculinity, tarnished masculinity, bruised masculinity, but they're all, they all have characters that are trying to emerge from that in in the face of difficulty which is as i said earlier that's usually the the source of conflict in the the story each movie depicts but uh what i'm going to do is i'm going to give you a list of five directors uh five directors some of them are writers and directors and i'm going to repeat the list because <laughs> i don't think i am going to put this you know, an extensive uh, list of credits in the description of the episode. It just feels like it's too much. So this is going to be a case of if you're interested in this stuff, listen carefully. But the thing is, if you're interested, you probably already know these guys. You're probably already familiar with their work. And I'm not going in any particular order. I just jotted down some notes before I started recording. And just listen to this. And I'm going to start, you know, going over um the movies in question and showing how they overlap in terms of themes and sometimes even actors um so 
what we have is we have Taylor Sheridan, Scott Cooper, Gavin O'Connor, James Gray, and James Mangold. So that's Taylor Sheridan, who I think is the youngest of the group, Scott Cooper, probably the next youngest, Gavin O'Connor, slightly older, or maybe the same age. Um, those guys are all sort of Gen X, 50s, 40s kind of territory. And then you've got James Gray and James Mangold, who are probably 10 to 15 years older than those guys. Now, what these guys all have in common, they are all making movies or have all made movies. And it's not, it's not, it's not every one of their movies, but some of what I feel are their, their, the strongest movies. They get into this territory of of you know of 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 male of male lives and you know these as i said before these explorations of flawed or brutalized masculinity and they're often they're often fundamentally brother relationships at play um even if the characters are not actually brothers but they're friends but they have that fraternal bond um and fathers often feature as well um so yeah so basically i'm going to just touch i'm going I'm to drop quite a few movie titles here and mention the actors and you're going to start seeing a sort of an emergence of commonality um so i might work i might work in reverse because james mangold and james gray they really got the ball rolling and i remember james mangold directed copland uh which is 97 and i'm not going to be able to remember the dates of all of these but copland a terrific uh terrific cop drama which gives you one of sylvester stallone's best ever performances so if you want to include rocky as one of stallone's best performances and then uh creed from a couple of years ago or a few years ago as another of stallone's best performances and we'll throw in first blood for the crack uh, his the first time he played John Rambo, and then in Copland, Stallone plays a a a good cop surrounded by not so good cops in this suburb outside New York, um, where all the cops live, and his job is to police that town, to police that suburb, and make sure all those off-duty cops you know don't carry on too much and he is you know regarded as a joke and he's he's hard of hearing in one ear from a, a heroic act uh, as a younger man uh, where he, he rescued a a woman from a, a car that had crashed into a river and he still it's still clear that he he, he holds a torch for that girl um played very nicely by Annabella Ciora and she is in the movie married to Peter Berg Peter Berg's character who's just this sort of drunken abusive husband um, but anyway whatever it's a great movie of the Stallone character trying to trying to find his courage trying to find the courage to stand up and do the right thing and take on these corrupt cops in in, in the town he polices and regain 
his own, you know, regain credibility in his own eyes. And he's up against like Harvey Keitel as the kind of the leader of the dodgy cops. You've got Ray Liotta in the mix. Another one, I mean, Ray Liotta definitely falls into the category of this actor that I like, the kind of, the hurting, the hurting male, the hurting, sensitive, kind of volatile male who you kind of, Ray Liotta just always carries this sense of, um, I don't know. To me, a very I find him a very attractive actor, and I feel he always carries that sense of he knows he knows that bad stuff he's done. He knows the dark side of the stuff he's done, but he kind of wants to come good. Although there was that movie I want to say Narc, where he really didn't have any redeeming features. He was absolutely horrible. But anyway, whatever. Um, yeah. Anyway, Copland great exploration of all these kind of uh, depictions and aspects of masculinity um, clashing up against each other. Um, Mangold also gave us Walk the Line with uh, Joaquin Phoenix's great portrayal of Johnny Cash and of course Reese Witherspoon's similarly great performance of, um, oh now I'm going to say June Carter Cash, is that what it is? Uh, Now Walk the Line isn't really in the group of movies that I like Copland would be. I'd sit down and watch that any time. And then Logan from a couple of years ago, which was uh, the really the kind of a, a coda to this whole sequence of Wolverine <laughs> pictures. So we're start, we're straying into superhero territory here. Um, the Australian actor Hugh Jackman has played Wolverine about five hundred and seventy-seven times over a twenty-year period, uh, starting with uh, the X-Men which I think the first X-Men movie was directed by Brian Singer. And Wolverine, uh, you know, as a superhero character, has just he's always been not a hard-soft combo, more a hard-hard combo. But when you dig deeper in that character, and I remember reading him in comics as a kid, you knew he'd been, some, been through some really rough stuff, experimented on, and had a sort of, a, an, I want to say adamantium, is that the metal? this extremely tough metal a sort of a an, a an endoskeleton was put into him and he was given these sort of sword blades that could shoot out of his knuckles um and basically he was uh, experimented on as a type of super soldier um and he had and this is what was interesting to me as a kid he had a samurai code so there was this kind of japanese influence there as well which made him i, I found fascinating but anyway, in the movies, I feel he's always been depicted really well by Hugh Jackman. And Logan, which is his non-superhero name, uh, is this really sort of... Um, uh, I'm, I'm struggling to pronounce this this adjective. Ele- <laughs> Ele- <laughs> the adjective from elegy. Elegiac? 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 You know what I mean? This sort of sad, um, reflective, um, kind of swan song for the aging Wolverine character who is just wrestling with his his mortality. And he's joined by Patrick Stewart in a, in a great performance by Patrick Stewart who's who's ending his sort of journey with the Professor X character who was the founder of the X-Men, the school for mutants, 
and later you know that those students become the superhero group the x-men um which of course was always a an allegory for 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 racism um presumably amongst other things i mean fundamentally an allegory for othering anyone who was was different but um logan fantastic fantastic a fantastic uh again a fantastic depiction of broken masculinity and masculinity engaging with itself i suppose uh add to that list of james mangold movies you had ford versus ferrari which came a year or two after logan and you've got the, again you've got the sort of the, the brotherly relationship now it's not it's it's that's really it's moving away from this wheelhouse that i'm talking about but you've got matt damon and christian bale and remember that name christian bale he's going to crop up again but matt damon and christian bale as these uh sort of genius car racers who form an alliance um uh you know kind of a brilliant american guy and a brilliant and sort of tough northern englishman very very humorously played by christian bale in the movie but again you've got the the, the masculinity wrestle uh, who's going to prevail who's who's going to yield in their sort of uh love hate relationship anyway grand james gray so james gray I think reached sort of a, a pinnacle of his career a couple of years ago when he made the brilliant uh, science fiction movie Ad Astra, which I'm sure I've spoken about before, and gave us a great performance from Brad Pitt, who plays a decorated um, and established very early in the movie, in the opening sequence, a decorated and heroic astronaut, um, you know, astronaut and officer of the US military. Uh, he is puts in a great performance as this guy who is being sent back out to space to try and locate his father and his father as he is was a much celebrated astronaut who went off on this mission uh, but he's lost the plot and is carrying out some crazy sabotage on his space station which is causing devastating effects back on Earth. And basically, Brad Pitt's job is to go and get your man, go and get your dad, sort him out, and if he can't be brought to heel, terminate with extreme prejudice. And fundamentally what you have, and this is not me being original with this comment, it was quite a few critics have pointed it out, it's basically Apocalypse Now in space. So Apocalypse Now based on Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Apocalypse Now featuring Martin Sheen going deep into the jungle to try and take out Marlon Brando's Colonel Kurtz um, and being sort of beguiled and seduced by him but ultimately having to do the deed. But Brando, the Brando character Kurtz in Apocalypse Now is not Martin Sheen's father. In Ad Astra, Brad Pitt is going to try and have this confrontation with his dad and it brings up all his daddy issues and it's just this great performance from Brad Pitt of that repressed pain um, and just seeking the affirmation and the connection from his dad just wanting I guess to be seen and so now we're starting to kind of tap into something because 
you know, that's something that I find I respond to when I watch movies is depictions of fathers, uh, fathers connecting with sons after perhaps years of avoiding that or years of not talking or years of not expressing, uh, not expressing, not expressing their feelings, years of not expressing their feelings. Um, it's a bit of a cliche, but I yeah, it tends to sort of open me up when I see that stuff on screen. If it's done well, if it's done by good actors. Um, now, James Gray, a couple of his earlier movies were The Yards and We Own the Night. Now, both The Yards and We Own the Night were sort of period movies set back in the sort of 70s, early 80s, maybe. You know, disco scene and these kind of almost sepia-toned movies um with a lot of period detail that kind of that look from 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 the relative time frames but they both feature Joaquin Phoenix so jumping over from Walk the Line and Mark Wahlberg and in both movies in in We Own the Night they are are they actual brothers I think they're actual brothers in the yards they're not actual brothers but they're friends and there's family connections and again they're kind of they're sort of set in opposition. You know, one is the bad boy um, and the rule breaker. And I think it's Joaquin Phoenix in both of them. Um, and Mark Wahlberg in, in the yards is kind of just coming out of prison and trying to sort himself out and, yeah, finds himself in, in a scrape. And um, James Kahn is the, is the paternal figure in that. He's, he's, he's an uncle of one of the characters but he's dodgy and Mark Wahlberg has to kind of negotiate that and end up, he ends up, I think, testifying against them. So it sort of has echoes of On the Waterfront, which was, uh, of course, Marlon Brando going up against the mob um, and testifying against them um, because they were, basically their control of the docks was... uh, you know, it was just too much and they were taking out people, anyone who kind of moved against them and they end up killing Brando's brother. And that's why he goes, no, enough is enough. I'm going to take these guys on and testify. Of course, not before he has this epic fight with Lee J. Cobb down on the docks near the water and gets battered. But anyway, um, yeah, so... You have a, you know you have echoes of that and you, you know there's no doubt these guys were influenced by the t- likes of Brando Brando again another great sort of hard soft combo particularly in on the waterfront actually that kind of because he and, he and he's a boxer in that as well so there you go that's the Montgomery Cliff connection too but he's the boxer the kind of the failed boxer who took dives and you know he's kind of all he's, he's not that bright but he's sensitive falls and falls for Eva Marie Saint um really i love that performance in on the waterfront but you know james gray um these directors you know they know their they know their film history they know who they're drawing on and they they tap into these these same sort of tropes and these same um flexes of masculinity uh and yeah that stuff i find myself and the yards and we own the night they're not perfect movies and then we own the night they're kind of a family of cops Joaquin Phoenix though is the kind of the, the conflicted brother and this is a theme that comes up again you've got the, the good brother and the bad brother 
and Joaquin Phoenix in Me On The Night, he's like a nightclub owner and he's got a great relationship with, now I want to say the Russian mob. I'm not sure if it's the Russian mob. I think they're Russian. And there's a father figure there for Joaquin Phoenix and he doesn't get on with his own father in the movie who's played by Robert Duvall. And Mark Wahlberg is the golden child. Um, and so there's all this kind of, you know, the tension there. Um, I don't like the way that movie ends. It's it, Plot-wise, it's a bit gammy. But again, you've got that, this interplay between the brothers, the father. Um, yeah. So anyway, that's James Gray. So we're getting into, you know, this thing again. The, you know, you know the, again, the masculinity um the masculinity in conflict the masculinity in crisis and, yeah, and women are not they don't really feature much in these movies you know they're girlfriends they're lovers they're they're loyal partners um but they're not really central to the storyline now we're going to move on to gavin o'connor now gavin o'connor is really interesting i think he sort of he he does this kind of combination so it's kind of it ends up being double catnip because he does the men stuff with sport and I referred to one of his movies last week he directed Warrior which has Tom Hardy and Joel Edgerton as brothers and of course Hardy's the wild one he's the out of control one he's the rule breaker but they are in the movie the offspring of Nick Nolte who as I mentioned last week he was the the horrible dad the abusive dad the alcoholic dad now in recovery and you've got that dynamic playing out the sons who don't really want anything to do with him except tom hardy recruits him to be his trainer as they go back into mixed martial arts um and gavin o'connor just stays in that sweet spot of these guys who are hurting so badly but trying to make sense of it all and trying to settle their demons and trying to transcend and um leave leave the pain behind but you know they they're, they're well written and <clears throat> i'm not choking up there i've just i'm just my throat's getting a bit dry <laughs> i wasn't about to cry i swear it's just so moving but but yeah uh as written in that movie those characters are are brilliant and brilliantly you know brilliantly played by the actors involved as well now, Gavin O'Connor also gave us, in 2004, the movie Miracle, where you have basically the hero journey of uh, an ice hockey coach. And that was based on a true story of the ice hockey team, who the American, the USA ice hockey team, who in 1980 took on and defeated the mighty Soviet Union ice hockey team who were who had been the absolute champs and demolished everyone for years and it was basically down to the newly appointed u.s coach who decided he had the recipe to beat them and used unorthodox methods to build his team and try and beat the russians at their own game and that was a disney movie from 2004 as i said and pretty, um, you know, very conventional, really. And it's like it, fundamentally, it's the underdog story. But that's another one I love. In you know, the sports underdog, where it's the coach who's trying to convince all the doubters. And basically, you can throw miracle into that car- category, 
And in Miracle, the coach whose name I've just gone blank on, Paul, something or other, a very, um, a very sort of, a very humble and sort of undemonstrative Minnesotan, um, I guess, played really nicely by Kurt Russell. And so he becomes the de facto father figure to this group of young charges who don't know what to make of his tough love methods but they become better men as a result of it and of course they have the ultimate triumph of beating that Russian team who really interestingly and much more interestingly than anything that's given away in the movie are the subject of an extraordinarily good sports documentary called Red Army which is directed by a young American director from where's he from I can't remember his name or where he's from now the reason I'm trying to think of where he's from is because it's there's a very funny uh this is a very funny part late almost at the end of the movie like when the end credits are going um and you'd have to watch it to find out what I'm talking about but that movie Red Army tells the whole story of that amazing Russian ice hockey team and focuses on one of their star players and gives the entire backdrop of the the communist frame around sports and using sports as a weapon of the cold war and showing how as the cupboards ran dry in Aust- in, in in australia <laughs> as the cupboards ran dry in the soviet union um and that uh, you know the, the tension of the Cold War increased, and the determination to depict Soviet strength, uh, you know, intensified. How this ice hockey team were just pawns in the game uh, of communism versus capitalism, um, but the, the 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 ice hockey player that the documentary is focused on, he's just such a brilliant, brilliantly complex character. And he found himself in conflict with the Russian government and their desperate attempts to stave off, sort of, uh, to stave off perestroika um, and the sort of the new age of thawed uh, communism, glasnost, um, and the, you know, what, what Gorbachev was, you know, heralding in, I guess, in the, the late 80s, early 90s, I mean, I guess it all led to the fall of the Berlin Wall and the, you know, the, that symbolic collapse of communism or the end of communism. But um, in any case, Miracle, that movie, it doesn't give us any of that. It doesn't give us any of that complexity. It just shows those Russians as, you know, the, the monolithic, stone-faced, unfeeling, um, yeah, <laughs> representatives of the Soviet Union. Uh, see also for that, uh, Dolph Lundgren's portrayal of Ivan Drago in Rocky IV, very one-dimensional, but um, my God, that documentary is worth checking out. Red Army. Anyway, Gavin O'Connor, like what he does well is that male bonding, male maturation journey, um, and in the case of Miracle, the coach has his underdog story, um, and I was going to mention also in terms of sports underdog coaches, see Friday Night Lights. Billy Bob Thornton as the coach of high school, high school, like, sorry, college American football team. And again, trying to convince 
the passionate, dedicated locals and higher ups, I can do this. A um, little bit similar maybe to 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 Gene Hackman in that uh, basketball movie, which the name of which I've gone blank on. It's beloved by many Americans. It's really not a great movie though. It doesn't stand up. Barbara Hershey, Dennis Hopper is in there as well. But again, Gene Hackman having the unconventional training methods in that one. What the hell is it called? Poof. Best shot? No, I don't know. Anyway, um, Gavin O'Connor, staying with him. He moves us on to The Way Back, which is from last year and features Ben Affleck. Ben Affleck as a former great uh, basketball great from his college days who never took the opportunity to go on and play at the top level in the NBA and we meet him late in life later in life 20 years on and he's a broken man he's a hard drinking alcoholic working in construction but gets called back by his old school to coach the college team and it's his journey of of sort of uh, faltering redemption and done really well again the sport gaining the trust and admiration and love of the guys he's coaching um, interestingly in that one it doesn't have the for Ben Affleck anyway it doesn't have the sort of the, the miracle kind of happy ending uh, and you know it's not based on a true story but really really nice stuff um, uh yeah, so worth checking out. Um, yes, so two more. Two more before I finish, okay? You've got Scott Cooper. And he came to notice around 2009 with Crazy Heart, the the Jeff Bridges movie. So Jeff Bridges as the alcoholic country star and his journey to sobriety and sort of again another redemption story um so that's kind of interesting uh, but he also specializes then in he did a couple of movies after that pride and glory featuring edward norton and colin farrell again as as brothers are they brothers or just it's just that fraternal thing the the, the bond dodgy cops corrupt cops so you got the kind of the alpha male thing, Edward Norton trying to do the right thing, Colin Farrell being way out of control, John Voight I think is the dad in that one. So again, like bringing out these old guys, you know, these great old you know Hollywood character actors to be the dads. We had you know Duval, James Caan, John Voight, you know the kind of the seventies boys. Um, then you have Out of the Furnace, another great one, and here we've got Christian Bale. Christian Bale jumping in again, um, previously mentioned in Ford versus Ferrari. Uh, Christian Bale and Casey Affleck as brothers. And Casey Affleck as the wild one that can't be controlled. And Christian Bale as the sort of, the stoic, suffering one who you know he's got the goods. You know he can take care of business, but he's trying to do the right thing. He has a terrible accident, ends up going to prison comes out Casey Affleck has been in the Marines and is out of control trying to get you know money in bare knuckle fights um, and 
the looming threat over everything is Woody Harrelson's incredibly scary sort of you know hillbilly gangster uh, hillbilly kind of murderous crime lord great great performance by Woody Harrelson absolutely convincing and he ends up going head to head with Christian Bale you've got Forrest Whitaker as uh, the quiet decent cop who ends up with Christian Bale's ex-girlfriend played by Zoe Zaldana and they've got a lovely lovely tiny scene in the middle of the movie where she's committed to Forrest Whitaker she can't she can't leave him she has to stay with him she's pregnant in fact is what the story is and she just has this great moment with Christian Bale they meet they're standing on this like railway bridge I think in the this rough town and they're just unable to express the depth of pain and loss uh, of having to let go of their love for each other um so again you've got the hard you've got the soft and ultimately in that one you've got the righteous with christian bale having to seek revenge for something that's happened to his brother um another interesting scott cooper movie was hostiles christian bale again escorting wes studi's indian like american indian chief back to a reservation um and christian bale wrestling with his own white rage and racism and desire to um to dispense brutal frontier justice because he's 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 a cavalry officer and that sort of conflict and wrestle and maybe coming to an understanding of the different way of life and way of thinking of the american indians quite a confronting movie but good and a western so i've got this soft spot for the westerns again you know um, another Western I didn't mention was Jane Got a Gun, which was a Gavin O'Connor, who I spoke about before, Warrior, Miracle, The Way Back, and Jane Got a Gun, featuring Natalie Portman as a tough woman in the West, having to protect her injured husband against some banditos. And Joel Edgerton plays an ex who comes to her aid. Uh, not a perfect one, but still quite enjoyable, quite tense. Um, Noah Emmerich plays the wounded husband and he crops up in Warrior as a decent um, is he decent? <laughs> a decent bank manager who can't help Joel Edgerton and he also crops up in Miracle as the assistant coach to Kurt Russell so you know these directors they use their little you know their repertory actors and come back to them again and again so we have a final a final jump to Taylor Sheridan Taylor Sheridan who is the youngest of this crew of directors, but he jumps right into this this sort of, uh, yeah, these kind of alpha male masculine characters dealing with the tough end of life. And you've got a little trio of films from him, two of which he wrote, one of which he wrote and directed. The two he wrote were Sicario and Hell or High Water. Sicario features a brilliant Emily Blunt thrown into the deep end of big tough alpha male world of u.s law enforcement trying to take on the drug cartels of uh is it i can't remember if it's mexico or colombia in sicario mexico i think benicio del toro is in that uh josh brolin and um yeah 
really, you know, terrific stuff. Um, tough, tough stuff. The one sort of decent, honourable male character in that is played by the English actor Daniel Kaluuya, who is Emily Blunt's uh, partner, um, you know, uh, like police partner in it. And he smells a rat and is trying to kind of steer her clear. Um, but yeah, doesn't doesn't succeed. Daniel Kaluuya, interestingly enough, crops up in that Steve McQueen movie, Widowed. He doesn't crop up. He's an absolutely central part in that movie. He's chilling as a very, very dark, psychopathic enforcer um, who the titular widows come up against. A very nasty piece of work. What a, what a great actor he is. You should check him out in Judas and the Black Messiah which uh, I think, did he win the Oscar for that? He was certainly nominated. Um, very, very good actor. Uh, also, so Hell or High Water features a couple of brothers. And you've got Ben Foster as the wild, out-of-control brother. And you've got Chris Pine as, again, the reluctant badass. And that is a really interesting movie which basically portrays the brothers as guys who are trying to save the ranch, save the family home, and are victims of the financial collapse and banks not doing the right thing. And they just go on this kind of spree of targeting banks and trying to kind of get back money to pay off uh, the debt over their family home. Um, And in pursuit is Jeff Bridges. So Jeff Bridges from Scott Cooper's Crazy Heart He's cropping up to chase them. And that that movie's only seven years after Crazy Heart. But Jeff Bridges turns up and he looks like Chris Christopherson, you know, who a Chris Christopherson who's like minutes away from death. Um, Really, yeah, nice performance, an interesting movie. And again, you've got the, you know, the toxic, out of control masculinity of the Ben Foster character and the Chris Pine character wrestling with trying to do the right thing. But again, you know, having to take action. The final of those trio is Wind River, which features Jeremy Renner as a animal tracker uh, on an in- American Indian reservation. Uh, like, is it Wyoming, maybe? And he comes into conflict with some... What are they? They are... Are they, like... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for mercenaries guns for hire but they're not no like it's like what you know the work that like ex-soldiers do so paid security for a mining company and there's like a murder to investigate and Jeremy Renner's like this absolute cold resolute badass who is carrying an absolutely shattered heart an enormous pain. He has one great scene where, you know, we get to tap into what he's gone through. Um, but again, righteous, trying to do the right thing. And, you know, a very interesting depiction of American Indian culture in a, a modern context and reservation life and displacement and disenfranchisement and legacies of pain and uh, generational uh, poverty and abuse and suffering. Uh, but you, you don't see that much. You don't see that much in the modern American cinema. So 
again well worth checking out and that that is it so that's been kind of epic what i know there was something else i wanted to talk about <laughs> one more one more throwback robert duval and tommy lee jones now if tommy lee jones was going to crop up somewhere else but i can't remember where maybe josh brolin in no country for old men and tommy lee jones is the texan policeman trying to track down um a missing josh brolin and a missing missing um case of cash um and that ties in another sort of flawed you know flawed masculinity or tormented conflicted masculinity but tommy lee jones and jeff bridges so jeff bridges is another cop in pursuit older cop in pursuit um in hell or high water uh oh, no jeff bridges have gone on i've gone off there robert duval is who i wanted to talk about robert duval <laughs> sorry robert duval and tommy lee jones in lonesome dove back in the day back in around around 1990 i think or 91 it was a mini series a western based on a larry mcmurtry book um and i loved it i loved it just the old pals and i remember ricky schroeder turned up in that ricky schroeder from um what was he in was he in the champ no or was he in silver spoons he was the child star ricky schroeder but he turned up in lonesome dove and he dropped the y and suddenly he was rick schroeder which means we've got to take him seriously anyway uh that was just another connection more masculinity more man's man stuff but i remember loving that miniseries back in the day and it's in the mix with the westerns with men trying to do the right thing and with male bonding friendship male <laughs> male love man on man love and um that's that's my movie catnip that's where i end up going where i just want to sit back and wallow the male chick flick so i mean really the last part of the podcast there i'm just giving you recommendations i don't know um how well it holds together or if it's piqued your interest but um i know it's made my voice very tired and i need to go to bed so with that i will say good night fare thee well and if you go and check out those movies happy watching if you're if you're a boy who's looking for a cry who's looking for a, a case of the fields and maybe if you're if you're a female listener you might go really this is you slag us off about chick flicks and this is the shit that you like yep it is it is the shit i like it's the shit i love but there you go listen thank you for listening and remember you can always throw some support my way using the supporter link in the description or using the patreon link um, and that is patreon.com forward slash the clear out but please keep listening um i'm really enjoying doing this uh getting some great feedback from people out there and i just i just passed a thousand downloads <laughs> so i'm going to just say well done me uh, my little independent podcast 18 episodes deep now but it only took 17 episodes to to stimulate over 1000 downloads uh for this podcast that is 
I started it in late May, so we got June, July, August. We're let's say it's about four months old. Okay, a thousand downloads might not be much compared to the big hitters, but I think it's it's worth mentioning. So, well done, Dara. Fair play to you. Keep up the good work. Okay, mind yourselves. Take care. All the best. Bye.